destroying my own ego one art piece at a time. <laughs> yeah, sure. Or destroying my hearing one one ear at a time. Yes. Somehow. Do you, yeah. Do you perform your music live for shows, stage shows and stuff? Gen- generally, yes. I mean, I guess my my work uh, is kind of divided up into three um, different sections, maybe. I would say one of which is working a lot with dance and contemporary performance companies. Um, one is the performance of basically like solo electronic music, and the other is is composition for external ensembles or groups or performers or things like that. And ge- generally, and uh, I mean, always when I perform my solo electronic work, it's it's always live. I mean, there's obviously always some pre-recorded things or some sort of set it's and 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 I rarely improvise in such a specific way but that's always live with performance companies um also I tend to do a lot of things live for them the reason being that um a lot of my interest in working with dance and performance is actually on the aspect of interactivity so how can I you know I mean I mean it's fine I think it's it's good to work with companies that uh, that like my that like my work and see a clear kind of entryway into their performance for the sound the type of sound I'm working with, but actually really what I prefer is to work with them more in development stages and create uh, situations where sound and movement or sound and text are a bit more merged and that often relies on a lot of live input or manipulation on my ends and. Um, so that's it's always kind of more fun for me, and and hopefully generally more fun for the performers, uh, if if I'm working in that way. Um, and then when I, and then when I compose for for other ensembles, then uh, generally I that's the kind of most stressful way at the beginning, and then the easiest way afterwards because all I have to do is sit in a chair and tell them which notes they're playing wrong, and that's a bit easy. I find that to be a bit easier, but uh, the the process is is always very difficult for that so i mean it's already interesting to hear how how you think about what you do and and specifically how uh much it hinges on the relational to other Mm -hmm. artists and performers and context and space and and is it i mean do people ask you all the time if you changed your name to sam hertz (laughs) uh yes pretty much i would say uh every time i've ever given an interview someone asked that question (laughs) but but also 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 recently when i was um what was it oh i was signing a i was signing a contract with the group i'm working with and the and the production manager of the group was like who who i've known who actually i've known for a couple years but they they were like it just dawned on me today that this this is your legal name, and I was like, "Yeah, actually, it, it is." And they were like, "Yeah, I just always assumed that it was a, it was it was a name that you adopted." And I was like, "Wow, that's that's super funny. That's like really strong commitment." And I only realize now that I'm processing your paperwork that it's actually your, your birth your birth name. And I was like, "Yeah, um, yes, it it is in fact my birth name." And uh, but it but it does seem like a good question to ask because, you know, some sort of 
it hints at some sort of predestination that I. How do you feel about uh, destiny, uh, mate? When you're making a work, like in the context of coming together to put effort in with a team of people to produce something that others can experience, do you feel like there is destiny at play in what you will eventually show the public, or do you feel like actually you really need Mm. to take control of shaping and authoring? I'm. A, I mean, I'm always a really big fan of kind of. I don't know. I don't know if destiny is the word, but I'm a big fan of trusting in uh, the process of making work. That's kind of what I ended up hinting at um, a bit earlier when I was saying that essentially, you know, the, the ways that I prefer to work with with performance ensembles, for instance, is to really address it from the perspective of building a piece together. Um, and for me, I, I've always had a really, really hard time separating, you know, if I'm working with performers, uh, it, it's impossible for me to separate sound from the performance or the, the movement methodology. And I mean, that's everything from like, of course, sound is coloring the types of movement that you're seeing on stage. But it also comes down to, you know, a, a, a recognition that the dancers are also making sounds. I mean, they're, they can be making sounds on purpose, like if they're using text or creating some sort of sound on stage. But you also think about the more subtle moments, like the sounds of the sneakers on the floor, uh, the sounds of materials they're using, whether that's being considered or not. And I think all of those things basically for me get thrown into a giant pot. And as if I'm brought on as a composer or sound designer, I think it really falls within my purview to, to work and finesse uh, all of these material aspects so that when we're working with sound in relation to performance, for example, we're also considering, you know, almost literally every sound that could possibly happen within the 90 minutes of the performance, not just intentional sounds or to be able to make every sound completely intentional. I was going to say what you made me realize is that it doesn't really, what you make isn't what people hear because when they listen to it, they're obviously watching and then what they watch will make sounds appear or not appear because actually it's, you know, maybe it's a bit too philosophical too quickly, but the tree falls in the forest doesn't make a sound. You're like, well, it vibrates the air, but I don't know if it makes a sound if there's no one there to hear it. And similarly, right, yeah. the dancers are the trees that are falling and the audience is actually the ones that make the sound. It reminds me of that video clip that I was going around a while ago <coughs> about um, like non-English speakers singing songs that were in English and singing them like phonetically, basically, from what they had listened mm-hmm. to over and over again. And when myself as an anglophone listens to it i can hear the song that they're singing but i i don't i I guess conceptually they're not saying words they're making sounds Mm -hmm. i'm hearing words and that that like there's a there's a play there's an area there where you get to play within not just being a uh, a composer where people will listen but they also what they can hear is in response to all of your team, your creative team. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I had a really interesting experience with this uh, recently. As I'm, uh, One of the projects I'm working on is with um, 
an American choreographer named Jess Curtis. And we're working on a piece right now, which, which uh, is in collaboration with some uh, movement artists and movement practitioners uh, who have low vision or are, are in the sort of blind uh, low vision spectrum. Um, and what Jess was telling me over in one of the conversations we were having was that uh, of this notion called stealth access, and and of course it, it's within the it's within the within the area of um, building accessible performance. And the idea of stealth access is how do you give people access to certain parts of the show that they might not be able to have access to otherwise through any sort of sense modification. And one of the one of the best examples of that is is that Jess was saying um, a, a really a really good exa- a really good example of that is the fact that people uh, who are blind or have low vision often track the movement of people on stage by the sounds that their sneakers make, for example. So something that I never would have necessarily considered is the is the t- sounds of different types of footfalls on stage. Of course, it's something that when you think about it, seems really obvious. Um, but when it's put into this context, you realize that it's actually a, a strategy of not only sound design on one hand, but also legibility and comprehension of, of movement and action. And so that it's, you know, that, that was a big lesson for me also in terms of being like, uh, thinking about it from an access point of view on, on the one hand and on the other hand to really say like, oh, well, then it's really important actually that we consider all elements of sound, not necessarily that we have to design everything down to the, you know, the, the micro decibel that happens in a space, but that we can approach the combinations of sound and performance with a very, very subtle, uh, and nuanced sensitivity towards all of the actions and what they what they really mean, um, and that's and that's a, from a very physical perspective, but also from a dramaturgical perspective too. I mean, you know, in, in a much bigger kind of yeah. Lens, I but. was just you made me think about what happens when I watch a an instrumentalist versus a DJ, and that I mm-hmm. can see what the instrumentalist is doing that's causing the thing that I'm hearing, and it helps me to hear it. And that reminds me of what you're talking about when you compose on an ensemble and then they perform it live and then people can visually reference the sound source. But um, I'm curious to know what you think about when you're performing live and you're, I imagine, operating a technology that isn't so immediate in the what you do equals what we hear paradigm. Yes, yeah, exactly. I was, I was. If if you hadn't said it, I probably would have brought it up anyway. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's that's kind of the big. Um, that's the one of the big struggles in a way. I mean, sometimes I hesitate to call it a struggle because I'm never sure if it's really, really a problem or not. But, but the fact is that when I perform um, with electronics, I'm often performing generally primarily from my computer which is sort of the, like, you know, I remember being in grad school and, the, you know, everyone sort of talks about, I was in, in grad school for electronic music and basically the running joke is that everyone's on stage checking their yeah. emails. But do you use controllers? Um, and just... Do you use controllers? 
Yeah, I, I use controllers every once in a while, but it's not necessarily a mainstay of my performance. Um, and I and I kind of compare that to a couple more, um, maybe what I would call like kinetic performances with electronic instruments that I built that often also use computers or use software technology, but that require a great amount of physical input from me. And, and I think that I don't know which one is more fun to me. Um, but the fact is that, you know, as I feel like my comp, my, um, performances, especially in ele using electronic music become more and more complicated. I basically find myself having to sacrifice a bit of performativity for the sort of attention that I need to be putting onto my screen and operating all of the different components. I mean, with a controller, of course, you can add in a certain element of performativity, mm. but, uh, yeah, you know, I think, I think in an expansive way, there's a way to deal with that, but, but, but yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's, that's one, uh, interesting aspect is that it really does, uh, it it doesn't appear so interesting, and that and that led me really recently to start to work a lot with um, video alongside of my live electronic performances, especially ones where I'm just using a laptop. Okay, for so there's like a an externalizing of the visual stimuli that draws people to hear certain things, which I guess I often wonder this about like a a Missy Elliott concert versus. Uh, presets concert is that the Missy mm -hmm. Elliott has her dancers that are back up for us to help us hear the beats and the rhythms and the polyphonics. And then, but at, at one point when I saw her 10, 10 or 20 years ago in Melbourne, she took a break in the middle of her set and introduced each one of her dancers personally by name and got, and mm. got them to do a solo of their own material um, in a way that wasn't serving the sound um, so that we got to meet them. And I don't feel like that same uh, mm, uh, respect is the word that I'm reaching for, but I, I want a different one that is placed mm -hmm. on the video because we're so bombarded by visualizations as screensavers. Um, I mean, right. and it, right, right. It, it just reminded me like when often shows that I see that actually I feel like I'm wasting my life, they're doing the same thing. And it, it's even more infuriating uh, from an embodied perspective because I know how hard the dancers are working and, I know, and, and I'm deeply annoyed at how little I care and how little I'm like moved or made to feel because of how it's been framed or constructed or whatever. There's this really cool work that I saw a few days ago by Madeleine Fournier in Brussels, and she had, it was just a, a solo performance by her, but there were, there was a drum kit deconstructed and spread across the stage, and it was live performed, but not by a person, by, a, I guess, a, so like robotics that was on top of it. So you, the music soundscape was made live, but there wasn't the diffusion of choreographic subtlety that can happen when there's 
a person on stage moving to make the sound versus a person on stage moving so that you watch their movements. And so maybe there is there is something in your <laughs> minimalist lack of controllerism <laughs> that allows the music just to be or the dance just to be. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I, I mean, for me, it always seems like a trade-off and I feel like different, I, I kind of have to play around with what I what I feel like are are the best circumstances for each use. I mean, you know, you know, you know, when I'm when I'm working with dance companies, it's it can be a really simple question of like, actually, I'm not on stage, I'm in the sound booth. So regardless of how performative I actually am in working with the sound, if it's not being if i'm not being seen anyway i mean uh, it, does, it doesn't really change my behavior no, it doesn't but matter if you're a cellist sort of... sitting up in the sound booth or right. um someone yeah. like initiating q lab sitting up in the sound booth right i mean uh, essentially the optics are the same right it, <laughs> it ends up being that <laughs> that the sound appears and this visual stimulus is the dance versus you know a, a lot of uh, some performances i've been doing recently of, of solo electronics with video the the video uh, a lot of the visuals themselves aren't also so important in fact a lot of the backgrounds of the videos are, i generate are you know kind of look like glorified screensavers and that is really because they play the part of backgrounding text and i'm working a lot with text in these videos and so the idea is actually kind of making the video a bit of a forefront and the sound is able to a little bit uh sit underneath and and support it ideally people's attention can switch between them the kind of most recent version of this i did in um in Leeds with the, with upper North and you know, the, it's, it's kind of such an intense sound environment. I, you know, had a surround sound system, a bunch of giant subwoofers and a huge video screen. So it was sort of this big immersive project, but the idea there was really to have the text and sound fairly equal so that they can really sit and be addressed on their, own terms i don't i don't know exactly how that's uh i think what i found from feedback is that people really don't they tend to oscillate back and forth i mean at one moment they're in the sound world and at one moment they completely ignore the sound and and read the video and i find myself doing that too during performances uh, so so i understand i understand how that works i think i think uh this but but yeah i think this this question of you know, what, what are we paying attention to? How does, again, how does what we see affect how we hear? How does what we hear affect what we see? I think these are, uh, yeah, super interesting questions, especially when you're doing more kind of genre or media crossing work. Yeah. How does, let's get specific then. How does that fit in with the work that you're doing with Renee Shadler? Yeah, so the the work that we're all doing with this, specifically with the Caesaris project, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think the kind of really interesting aspect about the project is that 
our kind of aim is, is that it's very site responsive. It's very adaptable depending on performance context. It has a kind of like underlying operating system that's fluidly interdisciplinary, um, which is, which is really fun and really exciting, but it also means that in every situation we kind of have to figure out what, you know, what, what, what's the format of how everything is looking and sounding. You know, we did, um, we did a showing of it at uh, Palais de Tokyo in um, last November, I think, October, November. Um, and, you know, we had this really gorgeous space and, and we had to sort of really find a good way to mix sound and light and movement along with the sort of participants in this workshop we were running it sort of ended up being that I just used one speaker in the room and was able to just perform through that. And, and generally speaking, that's really not at all an ideal performance situation. <laughs> no, it's for the, me. Unless it's like but, the white album from the Beatles. It's really, it's really the opposite <laughs> of everything that you want. It's, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, it doesn't have this fidelity that I really strive for or, 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 the, or the sort of like high, high quality exactly which is especially interesting in this project because it really is all about space yes but the interesting thing was that one speaker really did it actually for the room i mean we had this gorgeous room where it sort of filled everything and it was adaptable in that actually it made the right the right amount of sound to really create an atmosphere that was able to be that was able to stick and part of the optics of the situation were that it was the sound in the room was basically, I mean, the, the production of sound in the room was basically invisible, um, especially in considering the very, very detailed, like, lighting setup and the sounds that are made by performers and the participants. I mean, it was really enough for me as a sound designer to, con to help construct the, to again, like, this total sound environment of the room, not just necessarily the, f the sounds that I'm, playing into the space because really the the sounds of the performance are much much more than that um so so yeah but but i mean the the project in general kind of operates from the same principle as was we can find a space and basically figure out how to how to fill it with light and with air and with movement and from there it's kind of a negotiation of how how we're working with audiences, how does text work in the room? How does the lighting design work in the room? Um, yeah, so it's, so it's a really interesting piece. And, 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 and a, lot of the, a lot of the impetus from this piece comes from, of course, our own practices. I know like myself and Renee specifically work a lot with um, movement and or sound related to questions of ecology and climate change. Uh, but we also, a lot of the parts of this project were born from collaborating with the Ericene project from Tomas Saraceno, who I've worked with for a couple of years and who Rene and uh, Maria and Kale had been in touch with when they were developing this project uh, to begin with as well. Is that to do with your interest in Anthropocene phenomena? Exactly, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I initially started working with Tomas in his studio through... Uh, basically that um, 
initiative through through the Anthropocene Curriculum Initiative, which is started by House of Kultur in the Welt in uh, Berlin. How do you think about what you're doing being useful when you move from a a framework of art which is generative and speculative and play to a framework of science-based rigor discussion uh, which inevitably leads to like protests and policy and lobbying and people who are working very instrumentally to try and affect change. How do you think about, um, I mean, do you even have the crises of is what I'm doing doing anything or is it not important? Is it just interesting to think about the Anthropocene? Yeah, no, no. I, I mean, I think that's a really great question. Uh, I, I tend to think quite a, think quite a bit about. Um, I mean, I, I think essentially what what you're getting at is the notion of efficacy, and and uh, I tend to approach it from the perspective of 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 course um, I'm an artist, and I think that that kind of off the cuff gives gives some notion of or or maybe permission to uh play with concepts to move a bit uh between ideas quicker than you might in an academic paper for example to be to be quicker with associative qualities of different material that you're dealing with but at the same time i think it's you know a, a lot of my work is dealing with um very uh very political notions i mean really with respect to climate and uh, environment but i think it's for me it seems really ingenuine also to ignore the the political nature of those discussions and so for me it's really important to to consider how politics uh figures into it the the way that i kind of approach that is by um maybe boiling down my kind of artistic process into um, maybe like two or three categories, I would say. I'm sort of just speaking off the cuff, but as it as it occurs to me, um, what, one is sort of dealing with um, notions of, uh, I, I guess also, um, I mean, I think legibility is a good word for it. Uh, or at least what is uh, what can be heard and what can't be heard, and um, in in that in that vein, that comes out of a lot of my research with sound below the level of human hearing. Um, and my sort of big takeaway from that is not necessarily. I mean, of course, there's this sort of fantastical aspect of the fact of sound below the level of human hearing that is this sort of huge, powerful event, but my sort of main takeaway from it is really that it gives us a, a sort of prodding to examine the different layers of sound and substance that escape our, uh, that escape scientific tools maybe, or that escape sort of public consciousness and the ways that sound actually can, uh, we can work, take, take cues from, uh, from sound studies, from cultural approaches to sound and apply them towards ways that scientists are working with sound to address things like climate change. For instance, using sound to measure rates of climate change 
through melting glaciers or through taking sort of biomass sound samples from environments that are changing, who have who have uh, sounds changing due to species loss. Um, on the other and not on the other hand, but sort of a related topic, I I tend to deal a lot with notions of scale, um, and this sort of comes from the same idea, but also a bit to do with um, how we understand maybe the relationships between different types of scaled hearing or scaled being in the world, scales of time. Uh, And a lot of that is, I would say, um, I I tend to also work with the the relationship between sound and, uh, well, of course, sound is always in time, but how to translate sort of these large scale deep time concepts into sound composition. And that's not for me really, it's, it's not just an aesthetic concern. I find it also has a lot of political potential because what I'm really trying to get at is not sort of, Oh, how overwhelming geologic time is. It's, it's more, uh, more approaching the idea that of, of how can we listen to time differently how can we understand our place in time differently and on a very political level how can we sort of start to incorporate different scales of listening and hearing into uh, addressing also these large-scale problems how can we see different scales of problems next to each other and begin to use that as a way of creating solutions by becoming sort of more fluent in working at cross scalings um and 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 I, and I guess so so basically then for me this is all very political but I think what's important to me also is that I am ultimately working with scientists and I am working uh between the arts and and sort of academic structures and also with um uh, with members of the public and I think that's something that's shared between my personal projects as well as Caesaris, for example, which we've sort of opened up to workshops. I mean, both the Caesaris project and myself as a solo artist ran workshops at Palais de Tokyo that all had to do with um, environmental listening strategies and uh, ways of thinking about time-based concepts and hearing concepts with relation to sonic ecologies, but also within Caesaris, the sort of greater notions of, you know, understanding scales and, uh, you know, a, a place, uh, our place in the world, uh, what our sense of time is in relation to geologic time. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. What you said about legibility is super interesting there because mm, nuance is the the pot from where we draw enchantment and and i would argue art like subtlety and nuance is where art springs from and yet legibility is is somehow a key driving force of comprehension and understanding to the point where we sometimes inevitably destroy some nuance in the pursuit of legibility and i I'm super interested to hear you talk about all of this stuff in relationship, like the the political consideration as well as the collaborative consideration as well as 
when you are composing an experience for somebody to go on to 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 somehow frame all of that in relationship with embodiment in in the human body and your background as a dancer and your collaboration with dancers and your desire to get public in to move as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think embodiment is a really great word. Um, I mean, I mean, I think a lot of, I I approach it from the perspective of um, really embodiment is the, is the only like solid tool we have in order to really get to the bottom of understanding these really, really large scale problems. Um, yeah. The, the question though, is then of course, like, okay, well, that sounds really nice. Uh, how does it happen? I mean, how do you embody deep time? What's the sound of an iceberg collapse, not, not from the perspective of the, literally the moment it collapses, but from the hundred years of buildup of, you know, heating, heating elements is, yeah. So, and, and is, you know, and, and as much as I really love the idea of embodiment, it's, you know, embodiment is, is, is a tool, but it's not, uh, and and I think it's a really important one, but it also isn't the same as political agency and political action. It can def it can it can be uh, they can work hand in hand. So do you think that the thing about embodiment is that it calls upon sensuality? Yes, absolutely. I mean, this is a, a, a topic I write about. Um, is uh, a bit was something I term environmental sensuality. Uh, and it's kind of the extent to, I mean, I think embodiment is also a really good word for it, but it's sort of the extent to which we can kind of create a sensual affinity, um, and relationship towards ecology, towards weather, towards climate. Um, and this is for, for me, for me, it's a theoretical concept on one hand, um, that I talk about in, in an article I published in Temporary Art Review, for instance. But on on the other hand, I find it to be actually a really practical engagement because I think that there are really sort of concrete ways that artists can use these concepts in work and that, uh, you know, more kind of political-oriented initiatives or institutions and, and academic institutions, for instance, I'm working a lot with geographers, that they can use the same kind of precepts that are generated um, through artistic workings of uh, environmental sensuality or environmental embodiment, however you want to term it, um, that can create, you know, really kind of tangible uh I, I don't like the word solutions because I'm not sure we've <laughs> solved because I'm not sure we've solved anything yet. Yeah, but, I was going to uh, ask about that. Um, yeah. One of my reservations when uh, leveraging embodiment or at least activation of neuro, of like mirror neurons through viewing of embodiment by dancers or whoever else is that we it also seems like it's not necessarily there's no passing mechanism that is checking that is fact checking that embodiment and that uh superstition or fanaticism arrives just as deeply and wholly and um 
uh, somehow it manifests just as strongly as uh, an experience, like an embodied experience of more factual or pragmatic realities of the world, like heating and deep time and things like that. So I, I, I feel a little bit like I'm borrowing the tool, like I'm borrowing the devil's toolbox because I see how they leverage for everything else. And then I wonder if I'm or just one of those people, like just one of these crazy cult leaders who just <laughs> somehow the cult that I do is art or embodiment or dance shows or something. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think when we talk about things like embodiment, for example, it's, it is, there's always, of course, like such a, such a drastic differentiation or maybe I would say drastic diversity among artists who use that as a, as a working methodology anyway. I mean, for some people, embodiment means uh, immersion, um, which to me doesn't necessarily equal the same thing, although they, of course they can encourage each other. For some people, embodiment is really kind of, can be more an aspect of, of data or like in sound, you know, uh, using tools like sonification, for example, which turn these sort of like large inaccessible data sets into more accessible uh, sonic parallels. Um, and that that is in a sense like a, a type of embodiment because it really does, it, it literally puts into your body uh, data. data. Now, is that the most useful way to approach situations? I'm not always so sure. I, th I think um, sonification, for instance, has a lot of really interesting components, but sometimes I really think that it it's, it's purports to do a bit more work than it actually does. Um, so, I yeah, I mean, I think it's a really, I think it's a really good question. And the 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 toolbox, for example, is still sort of. Um, leaking a bit because I think it's, as, um, but I, but, but that doesn't, that never really dissuades me from figuring out and playing with the sort of like, yeah, how, well, I mean, it, it, it all, it all comes from, from my sensibility, right? It's eventually it boils down to the question of like, unless there's sort of in, in, an external, uh, institution that's working with me to, create a sort of set of actionable goals or something then essentially the question of embodiment or sensuality comes down to however i understand it and so i kind of work with that idea in mind i mean maybe it has to do with shaking a room and and everyone inside really being able to understand that they're part of a giant mass of vibrating air and feel th that their ears and their chest cavities are the same as the walls and maybe that also doesn't happen and it just feels particularly loud in a given space. Um, that's, I mean, you know, that's, that's sort of the risk you have to take. And I, and I understand that as a, as a kind of sensual activity, but of course, you know, it's, it, it's art and you put it out into the world and hope people, or maybe hope people understand uh, sort of what you're going for. How but, do you leverage the potential to lie through sound in I mean, what I've done in the past when I've come in as a, a composer for dance shows is there's a scene that is particularly um, not, it doesn't go on any kind of arc, but I, 
it's then it becomes the the responsibility of the sound designer to somehow give an arc to the viewer so that they can stay with the visuals for longer than they otherwise would or like take care of managing the experience of time um but i but within that i'm lying like i'm definitely giving you an experience that something's happening when nothing's happening or 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 potentially the opposite Ooh, as well that nothing's happening when a lot is happening Right. I mean, I was talking. Rec- I was. I was talking recently uh, uh, to actually the the choreographer of the project that I'm working on right right at this moment in Berlin. Um, about we were sort of having discussion about this the the forward momentum of some sound I was making as as creating a sort of temporal situation that doesn't exist in the dance, and whether or not we can actually do the do the opposite. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a really, of course it's the same situation. Like we're really inside the piece. So we have to have a sort of a outside eye somehow, but, but I think this idea of, you know, of, of lying or, or manipulation or something, I think is, um, yeah, I think I really embrace it, but not from the perspective of trying to be a trickster more from the perspective of recognizing that, I mean the the capacity to work with sound is it really takes uh, um, or exerts a, a lot of like perceptive pressure on audiences, and I think that you know if you work with sound, you really understand how quickly it can shift situations from from its control uh, not con- control over but control with uh, visual stimuli. I mean you can really force. Uh, some interesting situations to happen, and I think I think yeah, it's it's something to consider because, of course, you can really trick um, audiences or manipulate audiences in, into feeling, for instance, like different senses of time or different uh, notions of of active or passive activity, for example. But um, it's just as easy to imply the the wrong thing too well I yeah mean, that's i've been wondering about yeah. that like to to whom does this sound serve and i wonder also if you want to touch on that question and all of this in relationship with making for say an imax rather than for a theater yeah i mean i i think uh of, of course of course it's context dependent and also dependent on you know, the audience, who they are, and also how they're seeing it. Um, but I think that, yeah, I mean, the, the IMAX is a good example of, of, of a text. I mean, that was really kind of the first uh, text video piece I did. Um, and, you know, th- that that piece in, in and of itself, well, the, the piece that it's a part of is quite complicated, but the IMAX piece it's, itself is quite simple. Really, it's just scrolling text that sort of goes forever and the sound is you know excruciatingly loud and the text is very hypnotic and it really kind of sets the tone for a situation where it's a little bit of like a dream state and you're supposed to be very overwhelmed um and i and i really needed the sound to work with that situation to basically not have any other option to imply something else uh 
when I had sort of originally paired the text with some other sound, it really just seemed like someone was telling a really bad story, you know? (laughs) (laughs) But then when I found the right sound for the situation, it suddenly changes from someone trying to tell you a story to a sort of like a very almost oppressive textual situation, um, which really expands out in space. And, and, And the idea behind that piece in general was that the IMAX was was generating such loud sound that it can be heard through the walls of the adjacent galleries. And then the visitors are in those galleries as part of a small, smaller um, isolated sound installations that are sort of responding to the vibrations and the, and the leakages of this sort of massive sound in the center. So the massive sound in the center is paired with text. And my sort of thinking was that the sound can be so loud and so aggressive that I imagined that it's taking the text from the screen and pushing it through the walls the same as the, the, same as the sound would be. Um, so, of course, it needed this kind of really... I wouldn't say the sound is abrasive, but I would say it's quite intense, right? So you're composing and, for multiple spaces... Uh, even though it's coming from one space and it seems like leakage, but the consideration is that the leakage is part of the composition. Yes, exactly. I composed for the building um, and, uh, and, you know, uh, tonally also uh, harmonically, the rooms were different. Were, were also related to this sort of center pitch, which we measured uh, pre- previously. Uh, we had gone in with an uh, with a, a team of architectural acoustic or one architectural acoustic who you know specializes in uh, measuring spaces for doing sort of uh, generally more kind of the 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 opposite task, which is figuring out what sort of <laughs> sounds are, are are echo- are echoing in the building and building mechanisms for minimizing the the types of. Uh, you know, leakages and, and echoes and reverberations. So, yeah, I want you know. that for every dance studio I've ever rehearsed in. Yeah, because it's just nice. a big, it's just a big square empty room with some shiny mirrors down one side and then windows on the other, and everything reflects back at you, and you're trying to find the beat. Yeah, unfortunately, that's it, seems to be quite often <laughs> lost in minimalism in sounds terrible, but looks right. lovely. <laughs> But but we had a really great opportunity. Um, me and uh, and Annie Jamison, who was the um, who was the the curator of, at the, the National Museum of Science, who was able to bring me in. Uh, you know, I mean, sh- she did a really great job of basically convincing the IMAX team to be on board with letting me play. You know, excruciatingly loud white noise out of the speakers for you know two hours as we could walk around the building and. And sort of sniff out which frequencies tended to leak down, down what hallways and, um, yeah. And then and then basically we we took those measurements, figured out sort of what were the what what were the general frequencies that tended to escape the room, and what rooms were the sort of most uh, the yeah. I mean the the, the frequencies that escaped the 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 large IMAX room and also the rooms which which most prominently displayed those leaking frequencies and built some small installations in those rooms to sort of reinforce this giant uh, sense that the entire building would be shaking from the sound. Um, of course, we weren't really shaking the entire National Science Museum, but 
uh, <laughs> not this time. Um, Did anyone accuse you of pulling a Hans Zimmer and just making the music so loud that you couldn't hear the text? I know. Actually, the text is not spoken. Ah, okay, okay. Yeah, sorry. It's uh, just it's just on the screen. And 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 initially, actually, I didn't want actually anyone to be in the theater itself to even see the text. That it would be kind of a private, um, I don't know, kind of meditation that's happening in the background. The 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 sort of um, weird part about this whole thing is that I. If, initially went to the IMAX folks and had given them the audio and they were sort of, you know, a little bit like, well, what are you doing? You have to give us a video. You can't, you know, we can't really just play audio through the system. <laughs> even the, even the test tones kind of are synced up to a, to a, to a video track, which doesn't, which is a blank screen, but still it runs a video. Mm. Um, so what is know, it play kind of, back in the IMAX? Like, do you just give them a USB stick or what's the go? Yeah, well, they have to convert it to their sort of proprietary digital format. Um, but yeah, I mean, essentially, you can just give them a, a video file. I mean, I, I mean, this was I, I sort of did it from the very, very low, low grade perspective, and they handled some of the back work. But but it's, but essentially, yeah, you give them a video with a five point one surround mix and. What do you mix Like, what are you? What are the tools that you do? You use different tools for different. Like when you're live, do you use something that's more of a live instrument versus? Yeah, I have a couple different uh, working setups. I mean, for something like the um, the IMAX project, for example, that was all done in in Pro Tools. I mean, it's just sort of a general DAW to 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 work with the sound and kind of have everything and then it's also just you know it's made to mix in 5.1 and it makes everything pretty easy for you for for live setups it really depends um it depends on sort of what are the other components i'm using uh generally i'm working in in uh, max msp um oh, that's deep that's the rabbit hole of itself yeah it is it is a rabbit hole but i mean i've worked i've worked with it for a really long time uh, so I have, you know, a pretty decent somehow library of pre-built instruments that I can use to perform. So it's now more and more, it's, it's, it's more and more rare that I need to really sit down with Max and, and program for like hours and hours because a lot of the things that I need for performing, especially when I work with performance companies that my it needs even with kind of interactive performance are much less. So I generally already have something that can accommodate uh, what needs to happen as far as like stage stage to sound booth interactivity. And then for my solo performances, it can be a bit more complicated. That's when I'll pull in uh, different programs or um, or also spend a lot of time. Uh, in other studios first to kind of like create more material and do a lot of recording and sometimes doing performances which are based more on pre-recorded sound that I've that I'm manipulating in very very specific ways and those are like residencies I've done at uh at studios with like very very large uh, access to to different synthesizers software and hardware and that sort of allows me to generate a ton of material that I'm not able to necessarily on my own that I can sort of use 
in live performances. And how does I, Earth Sound work its way into your library? How does Earth Earth How does Earth Sound yeah. work into my library? Yeah, that's a really good question because I think it's really I think it's really tricky. Um, I kind of think about it in two ways, which is a little bit of a false dichotomy, but <laughs> aren't anyway. they all? But, <laughs> but anyway, here we are. I mean, uh, like a lot of my work for the past year and a half was with this um, this idea of sound below the level of human hearing, and that you know, uh, like I said in a in a talk I gave for for sort of my final performance was was that of course it's the the sort of obvious and very funny thing is that um, the thing about sound below the level of human hearing is that you can't hear it. So it makes my job quite easy as a composer because uh, there's really not much that can be done about it. I mean, but then, of course, you can think about it in a more complicated way. And one of the ways I think about it is to do with, uh, well, we don't understand, I mean, we can't hear sound below the level of human hearing, of course, but we can feel it. And so... I've done some performances with, you know, really large arrays of subwoofers, which allow, um, which do create also audible sound, but they allow the sound in a room to be mixed in a way that you are feeling sound below the level of, of hearing. And that's kind of one, and, and I, and I take cues of that from artists like Marianne Amache, who um, vibrate? Who, who she did some famous series of performances where she's vibrating the walls of a house and placing speakers face down on the floor in order to sort of heighten the effect of, uh, of vibration as a form of hearing and not separate as t- you know touch as a form of hearing and not necessarily separate. The the other the other kind of aspect of earth sound uh, is you know more on the sort of audible side maybe but a lot of uh, a lot of work i'm doing also has to do with the kind of more conceptual ability to create sound environments that really to me truly feel like little ecologies or little environments that have interactive components and that can sort of i can like in a way let them sit like a little terrarium and they'll and the, and they'll yeah and they'll continue to sort of create similar sounding profiles that you know I would be able to recognize from from A to B because I'm familiar with the sounds but that are never quite making the same thing and to play around with a little bit of like the parameters of how far you can change in one way or the other that makes it deviate from what the sort of sound profile I was originally intending. And those I tend to use in in performance as well, but in a sort of way that I can create background information or context for other more kind of specific sound events that happen on top of them. So those for me are really beds. Um, and that I kind of combine with some of the like more recent, more academic and scientific research I'm I'm focused on right now which I'm sort of just beginning but uh work with um with bio disappearance of biomass and ways that we can think about sound as related to uh things like disappearing insect ecologies and and how very very subtle changes in acoustic environments can be seen as cues for large-scale uh, long-term 
climate change, for example. Wow. How, how, how do you, <laughs> because all of this is so massive. Yeah. <laughs> how do you just like write a melody and put it in a 4-4 so that the dancers can rehearse to it and be on time? Mm. Like on the beat. Well, <laughs> well, I would say maybe the, the, my easiest answer to that is that I think I don't do that anyway. So, or, or, or <laughs> don't work with dance companies that tend to rely on any sort of uh, beat structure. Or maybe it's important to them that they that maybe there is a rhythm somehow, but that it doesn't particularly matter for any sort of standard choreographic uh, uh, sensibility. Maybe. So that's that's kind of my easy out of that answer. <laughs> Do you ever do the moves that they're doing to get into it to feel how you should compose to it? Hmm. Um, not in such a direct way, but I would say that I think part of the part of the reason why I'm interested in being um, being in with the performers and the performance makers at the sort of ground floor is that. Um, it allows me to have a much better understanding, for instance, of not only the kind of like theoretical inspirations that they're working with to develop a piece, but also the very practical kind of like scores that they're working with um, and the types of movement qualities. And of course, those sometimes are created hand in hand with sound. But also for me, if I'm developing sound for a performance, it's helpful to know not only like what are the moves of the dancer, like how is such and such a person moving their elbow, but also, you know, what's the what's the quality of movement or what's the quality of the ensemble? What's the yeah? It's also the like sort of what's score their that's score exactly their internal dialogue that's pushing them through, and that hopefully the sound is working from a dialogue that is aware of that dialogue, so that. It's not that you're responding to the outcome, but you're both responding to the same impetus and conversation. Yeah, exactly. What do you hope that all of this will do? Or do you have, like, what's your biggest hope for all of the effort of, for, like, staying across all of the discoveries and findings and perspectives and then also keeping a continually, like, building this sound library that you can pull from that's, like... Yeah, quite laboriously gathered to not put too fine a point on it. It takes a long time. And, and, and like, is there a, is there a big hope to all of that effort? Yeah. I mean, I would say, of course there is. Um, it's not always so maybe clearly defined in such a strict way, but, but I mean, I think essentially what the sort of through line of all of my divergent practices are, uh, are, is, is sort of approaching the ability to create a much greater and more nuanced and much more personal understanding of of environment of surrounding environment whether that means environment like trees and water or environment like acoustic environment which is maybe it depends if you're in nature maybe it's nature but if you're in urban sphere maybe it's actually a much more uh, much more emphasis or attendance towards the 
urban politics of sound, for example. My, my, my goal basically is to work to develop a much more kind of heightened sensitivity towards sounds, towards sound as, as, as a, as a, as a, both kind of like political descriptor, but also a political agent, because I think that if there's a way to encourage, and, and I think that there is, there, there is, a, I should, so I should phrase it like this, maybe there, there is a, there is a way to encourage, um, this, this much more nuanced and much more active sense of hearing. And I think that that creates the conditions for a, a much more kind of worldly and engaged, uh, I don't know, population or, or audience or something. Um, but the community. Yeah. Because I mean, to the, to the end of course of one, uh, that we do have some very, very large problems that we need to deal with, including climate change, for example, that's just one of them. It's a very, very big problem, but it, it, you know, it's not the only one. And that, uh, we can understand that sound really gives us an access point for, uh, not necessarily using listening as a goal in and of itself, or it's not the end goal, but as, as basically a cue or a prompt to understand the kind of more deeper, longer term, more nuanced and significances of smaller everyday things that we might be overlooking. And so my, my sense is that a more sensitive hearing allows us to understand conceptually and practically a, a what what's happening around us at what scales are things happening how can we use sounds as a way to understand things that escape our hearing or escape our vision things that can be heard and not seen for example or things that can be seen and not felt or felt and not seen yeah there's a there's a like a facilitation of um synesthesia going on and that hopefully also bubbles over into the sense of and the construct of self and the edges of self in relationship with the world that we move through and the the, the others that we share the world with yeah absolutely mm. mate i just i just one other thing that occurred to me was about how mediated our experience is um with sound and even the like how how we're managing to have this conversation and like we're not even sharing the same acoustic environment um and there's i just wonder about i'm very interested to hear your thoughts about the how you were were speaking of sonic landscapes being forever changed due to everything, basically environmental um, upheaval, I would term it because there's forests rushing back that were never, that haven't been there for hundreds of years in Europe because we're burning coal now instead of wood. But at the same time, there's um, highways within a couple of hundred meters of most people's houses. And there's, there's, tweets and chirps and dings all around us and so what's my question my question is about 
there's the the world that we move through and the air that vibrates our ears from something that's happening that we are also live and engaged with and uh, 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 perhaps it's not even in the same realm as that there's pre-recorded sound that it can be looped and played back or there's the sound in the IMAX which no one's supposed to actually go into the IMAX to hear or there's a phone conversation or there's a like people are so uncomfortable with leaving voicemails, but <laughs> um, or I'm one. Of, I'm one of those people. I have to say, yeah, uh, I don't know why it's a phobia of mine. It, it it and it's real. It's a real thing that that we experience because there's a there's almost it's almost like we're treating sound the way that we treat water, where we seed it and then we capture it and then we manage it and then we treat it and then we store it and then we distribute it and then we dilute and pollute it until we need to release it again (laughs) right well yeah i mean i think uh, so i think mediation is a really good way to talk about it and i think my intuition is that yes of course so much of our sound is mediated i mean it's also like you know if if you're in school for audio production or something one of the things they always teach you to do when you're mixing music is you have to make a copy for uh, someone to listen to in their car and you make a copy for someone to listen to on their iphone because that's how you know 80 percent of people generally tend to consume music and so of course we would say that yeah that's a mediated situation like a lot of our a lot of our environments in general tend to be mediated, visually, tactile. You know, I mean, we of, of course, we're sort of moving around from environment to environment. Um, I get reminded of that when I go off-road, either like in a vehicle or by foot, and suddenly it's it's laborious to walk because you <laughs> have to step over things and the step up is not your... Um, your codified certain amount of inches or whatever. They're like, we live in a in a, an environment that has been shaped for ease of traversing by the human form, and then we move back to an environment that is not. And you're like, wow, shit's hard. Yeah, but I th- but I think basically what's what's obscured by that is the fact that you know as I move from my flat to my studio, for example, which are both tend to be very sort of uh, mediated environments or very, you know, very, very highly controlled. There's a sort of infinite amount of steps in between those two environments and that's, and, and within those environments themselves too. I mean, nothing's really perfectly mediated anyway, but that's, that's kind of the cue. That's my intuition is that, right. So we can identify actually this in between space as, as a way to pull apart what it means to live in kind of a mediated environment. Because between my flat and my studio, I mean, is 45 minutes of, of train travel. So who knows what can happen in the meantime. And all these sort of environments that you're passing through, the ways that the sonic environments change as you pass through them, kind of on a psychoacoustic level, but also in terms of I mean, if you want to think about it politically, you can think about uh, how uh, 
uh, how when you're moving from one neighborhood to another, they tend to get uh, louder or soft. I mean, ambient noise tends to get louder or softer, basically in line with average neighborhood income up to a certain up to a certain point. Is and that because of foliage, or is that because of vehicles, or is that because of? It's kind of. It's. I mean, in, I I know for most most of this understanding of mine is from case studies in the US but it has to do with proximity for example yeah i mean foliage is one thing traffic also high like proximity to highways ah, right uh, so people who can fac- afford factories, to pay more, pay more to yeah. not live in loud areas yeah that that tends to be the i mean right. it's a little bit different and very dense i mean i'm even thinking about but, when somebody is on the phone and they speak louder than they do face to face because they can't hear the other person so well and so they start speaking louder as if that's a because in real life that's a cue to the other person that we need to raise our volume and then both sides are yelling at each other but actually the volume does not increase because it is mediated and capped by the capacity of the speaker and the volume that it can possibly reach and so suddenly there's a uh, uh, the the mediated interaction, of course, just the act of raising your voice does all this shit to your body chemistry, um, whether it's celebratory or or frustrating or um, enthusiastic, whatever it is. And then at the same time, uh, in like the more, mm, I guess, compositional sense, it changes all of the... Uh, uh, what you would know the better word for this? I'm going to say f- phonic um, variables or frequencies or nuances or whatever. Like the yelling voice, even at a non-loud volume, still sounds as if it's yelling, even if it's still too quiet to be able to effectively hear. And so I'm more thinking about like telling each other how we love each other over FaceTime things like that <laughs> and that i i like i it it somehow works but also there are frequencies that drop away that we can't hear like i'm hearing your voice as it hits the microphone and then gets reproduced through my speaker but i'm not hearing the way that it is resonating in say your body in that room I'm not feeling those vibrations in the bed next to me. I mean, I'm, I'm getting a bit personal here. <laughs> but I'm, I'm kind of speaking about that kind of mediation, in, especially in relationship to performing live for an audience through, uh, through a amplified system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With dancers yeah. who are also making noise, of course. Right. I mean, that's... That's kind of one of the things that I always try and keep in mind somehow is um, is is exactly the context of how is the sound reaching the audience and how is the audience situated with respect to this specific sonic environment i mean that's that that's for me it's it it lends me to want to work a lot more with spatialized sound. Or in in the context both of solo performance, but also performance with uh, with movers, that th- there is there is a kind of like sp- there's a specific context towards this of uh, this um, 
what I would call like frontal theater sound, which I still, it kind of blows my mind because it, I find it so awkward and weird because it's really the only situation besides when you're wearing headphones that sound kind of comes from you and <laughs> comes at you in like one really, really distinct direction. I mean, is it, is, is a staging performance? Um, I mean, of course, when you're talking to someone, uh, you know, their mouth is sort of pointing at you, but really the way that sound works is, as, as you know, is like, it's a giant sphere that kind of always radiates outward. I mean, even, even when you're sitting in a theater and you have two speakers pointing at you, of course, you're still hearing in the, the full radial dimension of your, of your head. Right. So my, my kind of, my thinking in that way is that like I what I really am interested in is like creating situations where we have more active and nuanced hearing and part of that is also expanding the way that sound is presented the context of listening situations to begin with so spatialized audio for me is one way that uh, you can essentially create a, a fake or sort of overblown situation of that's a bit closer to the way that your hearing actually works, which is in 360 degrees. Uh, you know, w w one of the one of the practices that I played with at the workshop I was teaching um, was to try and open up the backside of your head and see how well or how nuanced you can listen backwards or what's the sort of farthest your listening can reach as, as, as a way not necessarily of saying like, oh, well, of course you can hear backwards because it's true, but it's more to sort of wake up the, the full 360 degrees of your listening situation and begin to incorporate that into how you're actually listening, listening to like everyday situations, how you're, or, and, and understand that, yeah, of course I'm wearing headphones right now. And so that makes our interaction very specific. And I think that we can understand that that's actually a quite like physiological reaction to a sort of enclosed space that we've both put ourselves in in order to talk to each other. So, hmm. do, do you ever get into the binaural or ASMR kind of, I would, I would say theater theatrics or, <laughs> or are you like basically working either with, uh, mono uh stereo and surround and your and the building that it's that it's in yeah i mean i haven't i haven't done much work with um binaural or asmr stuff i mean i think it's really i think it's really interesting and as someone who's like very sensitive towards i guess the sort of like spectrum of say cynical but sensitive uh, cynical. is much nicer no, sensitive <laughs> No, I, I I feel like affinity towards this this sort of uh, ASMR spectrum thing because I I mean I think that's one of the reasons why I'm interested in sound is that I can sort of identify very very distinct physiological reactions to different types of sound. But it's but you know I think I think that's a that's a really interesting scale. I mean if we want to talk about scale again, that's really like on the inside that deals with this very, very specific, you know, like synaptic connections. That's really, uh, on the micro micro level, which I think is super fascinating. I actually just really haven't done that much work with it besides, you know, listening to ASMR tracks or 
or using binaural beats, which I found I find like infinitely complicated and super nice and also very you know very complicated for the simplicity that it's involved in making them but um, did the ears go to different parts of the brain or do they meet do you know what the science is behind so you like how your eyes go directly to the vision center right at the back and that's why you Mm. get stars if you hit the back of your head like does does the right ear go into the right hemisphere and shit like that I I thought that they go into the uh well I think also your your ears tend to to hear uh differently anyway um the I think that it's pretty much the case that ears it's like one don't... foot is always a bit bigger Yeah I mean I think that there's I can't I mean I I'm 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 a little bit I I haven't read like a solid research paper that no, but it's the right that, artist, right? that says this. Like, yeah, we're, we're speculating <laughs> so that we can leverage it in our, but, in our work. But basically, yes. I mean, either your ears. I, my impression is that they go into the opposite hemisphere. I I believe that that's the case. Like your right ear registers in the left hemisphere, left ear to the right hemisphere, and that one of your hemispheres supposedly is is better at receiving sounds from like. Speech, and the other one is a bit more is a bit more oriented towards like harm. I mean, not that speech isn't harmonic, but that it's a bit more oriented towards what we would call like I don't know music. <laughs> so to, this to is, put it. I think, this is the right hand, right ear situation. Like your writing hand and your like the phone that you naturally the ear that you naturally put the phone to when you're trying to hear a call better if it's a bit shitty connection, that for me is the same. And it's a case study of one, but I'm going to say <laughs> that there's a situation going on there where my left hemisphere writes and my left hemisphere <laughs> listens better to speech. And there seems to be, I remember being in a show, and I forget which one it is, but there seems to that a whole aspect of my brain was going to sleep and I felt the fog coming because it was just dancing and music and there was then just a sentence spoken and then suddenly all my speech centers fired back up again and I was awake in a way that I had not been awake. Yeah, no, no, I mean, I, th- I think what it, in, in my mind this points to really the idea of like entrainment, for example, which is the ability to, I mean, I think this is kind of in, in, in my very amateur estimation uh the basis for like electronic dance or not not only electronic dance music sorry that's a really (laughs) it's really like weird way to say it any any music that has like i think rhythmic music basically um i was like gonna be really really 21st century but that's totally not the case um i think i think you know rhythmic i'm i'm not an ethnomusicologist so i really don't want to make things up but but my you know i think entrainment is is a really interesting phenomenon because i think essentially what it helps us do is turn off part of our physiology it's not sacrificing it but like it allows you to sort of fall into a rhythm and stay in this rhythm and as the rhythm changes, your 
your temperament and your body's reaction to the rhythm changes. And this is something that you're not really conscious of unless you want to be conscious of it. But your body is basically doing this adjustments automatically, right? Like your, your, your brain is a little bit turning off the conscious aspect well, well, in order to... Well, whatever opportunity it gets usually. Right, yeah. Whenever it can afford to <laughs> shut some always, things it can, down, it's like save that, it can, save that energy. I, I did a... That's the autonomic system, right? That's, that's making decisions on our behalf. I did a dance piece of, uh, last year in Sydney that was titled Autonomic and it was in response to the way that you can dance when you get to dance with other people in that you can if you find the rhythm the rhythm that you're talking about uh from the sound and then also visually from the other then you can somehow ride that into a place of arrival at the dancing rather than having to like produce it yourself yeah 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 i think you can i mean it's a situation where you're basically you're body can be well again it's it's the situation of like how does how is sound manipulating you somehow into a specific situation and manipulation isn't always a bad word of course like that's people people go to see dance music for example to to be willfully manipulated that's kind of the idea right i mean (laughs) well it's the same with like romance like it's a mutual manipulation of desire that both of you are trying to uphold for the other (laughs) in the romance of music. I wonder though, it just occurred to me last week that um, there's only a certainly, you were talking about the 45 minute train ride home to work and that is the time for listening to things basically, and the explosion in podcasting in the last four or five years is in direct competition for that time, for that listening alone time with music. And the just, I wonder about your thoughts on what if the whole world was listening all the time now to conversations and interviews instead of music and what that would be doing to us or to teenagers or to I mean it occurred to me that it was there was a lack of music in my life and whatever hit that I was getting from that music um, it was gone because I was trying to keep up with some some kind of like non-stop knowledge ingestion and I had to give it up and so I've gone back to a few of my favourite albums like Missy Elliott and Beyonce and Jay-Z and Mm. Well, well, I think that I mean, um, what what this what it points to is this idea of like so I, I I think I'm I I it, it'll sound like I'm speaking from a really like high horse, but I'm very very guilty of it's this a too. Low horse, which it's is like a Shetland pony, right? Yeah, <laughs> okay. but 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 this thing of like constantly filling your ears with something or constantly feeling the need to have something to have something going i mean actually when i'm home i'm i'm rarely sort of listening to music but definitely when i'm traveling somewhere i feel like there's i always have to have something kind of like in my ear it sort of doesn't really matter what it is uh i think if 
Yeah, and, and I don't really know why. Because I it's not that I'm necessarily spending this time like discovering brand new artists that I'm really excited about. And, and, and like maybe that happens every once in a while, but generally like, you know, if I'm going on a train ride somewhere, I'm going with a, with an old favorite or I'm listening to the news or I'm listening to a podcast and it's not different. It's not necessarily something that I'm particularly invested in. It really is to kind of like fill space. And I don't know, I don't know why, yeah, I don't know what the psychology behind that is, but I would say I'm just as guilty of it and recognizing that this is something which is, yeah, I mean, common. I think it's just when, when you're walking around, you just notice everyone's wearing headphones or talking to someone, <laughs> you know. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what that really points to. And... I think it has to do, of course, with access to technology, but I'm almost sort of skeptical that it's necessarily dependent. I'm not sure it's something that was created by technology, maybe. I mean, of course, they create a specific access to a greater amount of time that can be spent listening to music, for example, but, but I'm not positive that that's, you know, a yeah, I'm not a. I'm definitely not a technophobe in that sense. <laughs> no, how would you do your job, mate? How right, would you exactly. How would you vibrate the fixtures of a building by hand? <laughs> yeah, with very large hammers, maybe. Um, um, mate, is there anything that we haven't covered that you want to talk about? Like, I don't know, an epiphany that you want to mic drop on us, or or something that you try and remind yourself of when you're working towards production and there's a large group and it's stressful and, or you don't know what to do next. Hmm. Hmm. I'm just review. I'm reviewing in my head. Your entire Nothing career. in my entire career. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, of, of, of what we've covered so far, I feel that I'm sure there's stuff that's always left out, but nothing that, is jumping up to me in bright burning letters exactly mm. Mm. wow thank you so much for yeah thank thank you like, it's a very interesting conversation as well as the window into the efforts around like exposing yourself to something and then exposing that to other people through their senses rather than through their uh very much more effectively self-defended and barricaded rational selves it's hmm. a nice way to put it <laughs> <laughs> well that's the point of words right to try and yeah hopefully like you said about uh speech also being is it's uh you know you didn't say sonic or melodic Anyway, somehow speech is at this place where it can it can say the words, but it also can be the sound. And maybe yeah, of course. That's where we. That's why you use both, right? Yeah, yeah. Or as as well as we can somehow.
Oh, actually, well, anyway, I don't know when it's going to happen. So I, I have I have a um, uh, a publication that's coming out, which is a lot about this, the the critical ecology, sonic ecology stuff that I was sort of talking about. That's cool. But 